You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. All right, well, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally cool. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. We're a portable church. We don't have pew Bibles. And so they're just kind of coming up and down the aisle. Just throw your hand up in the air or holler at them. We want to make sure that everyone has a chance to follow along in God's Word today. And uh, if you're visiting with us here today, hey, I'd love to meet you. Sometimes I don't get to meet people at our church until they've been going here for like six months, sometimes 18 months. That needs to change. And so I love meeting people who are coming to our church to uh, visit, even if you're just coming for one time or looking for a church home. The thing that I find fascinating about meeting new people... um, is the different things they notice about our church. You know, the fact that we're portable, that we give Bibles out in the, in the aisles, the, the, the fact that we meet in a school and set it all up in teardown. So they notice something about the music or about the preaching. And it's funny that when I talk to people and I explain to them about the mission of our church and what we're all about, they're like, oh, I've never heard that. I didn't know that. It's just funny that some of the things that we notice, some of the things that we don't notice, because every Sunday, whether this is your first Sunday or whether you've been coming for many, many years, on either side of the, gy- either side of the gym here, we state what our mission statement is, to, to make disciples, which is the Great Commission, and to, and, to, and to fulfill the Great Commandment, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what we're about as a church. And it's funny how sometimes things can be so familiar we don't even notice it. And for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, that very passage, Matthew 28, the one that we're going to be studying today, sometimes it's so, it's so familiar, we've heard it so many times that we, we lose sight of what it's actually telling us. And so what I want to do is I want to ask ourselves some questions today, five questions right out of Matthew 28 as we continue in the series called Following Him, trying to understand what is discipleship. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples, but it also tells us what a disciple actually is, and what it means to follow Him. So I'm going to read Matthew 28, I'm going to pick it up at verse 16, and then we'll pray for God to speak to us. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's pray together. Dear God, I pray that you would speak right now in a way that only you can. God, thank you that you spoke when Your son said these words to the disciples that you spoke when Matthew recorded these words at the end of his gospel, and we believe that you are not just a God who has spoken, but you are a God who is speaking. And so, God, I pray right now that you would speak to us through your word, and God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be a disciple for those of us who aren't yet disciples or those of us who decided to follow Jesus many years ago, Lord, we all need to learn and grow in what it means to be a disciple. So God, I pray that you would do what only you can do for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In verse 18, Jesus 
said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what he wants to make clear to them, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Now, some people, they sort of have a casual, uh, sort of a, I'm a fan of Jesus approach to Jesus Christ. They try to sort of fit him into a nice sort of uh, compartmentalized box and say, yeah, you know, Jesus, he was the, he was the founder of a religion, or Jesus was a, was a great moral teacher. And all of that sort of makes sense if you only read certain things that Jesus says. But take a look at what he says here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is basically saying, I am the king of the universe. Now, if Jesus were just a mere man, if he were just a moral teacher, if he was just the one founding a particular religion or to bring enlightenment, it it just doesn't make sense that he would say something like, all authority in heaven and the whole spiritual world and on earth, everything, that he is in charge of all of it. You see, If he were just a mere man and to say something like that, people who say those kinds of things end up in psychiatric wards. People who claim to have ultimate authority over everything are crazy, unless they actually are. And in Jesus' case, he does have all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is the one who ultimately decides what's what. Now, you may be here today and you've sort of just been thinking about Jesus in the moral teacher sort of sense. And his authority for you is just optional. Well, that that means for you, if Jesus is not your authority, that means your authority has got to come from somewhere else. Many people say that, well, their authority is a science, and unless it can be proven by scientific method, by observation and that sort of thing, it it can't be proven to be true. So a lot of people are are saying that science is the ultimate authority. Notice how I just said a lot of people are saying that. That leads to the next authority is majority opinion, that what's what is determined by uh, how many people agree, and we decide what's true and what's right. The ultimate authority depends on what the majority is saying. But whether you think science is the authority or popular opinion is the authority, the place where your authority is coming from is really yourself because it's you that's deciding to believe in science. It's you that's deciding to believe what the rest of the culture believes. But in order to become a a Christian, you you need to answer this first question. Am I living under Jesus' authority? Am I living under Jesus' authority? Jesus says he has the authority. It's just a matter of are you living under it? Are you actually personally acknowledging that he is in charge? This word authority followed Jesus around all throughout his time here on earth. When he was doing uh, preaching and teaching God's word in the synagogues, it says that the, the people were astonished at him because he was teaching them as one who had authority. He wasn't talking about heaven like maybe it's like this. He was talking about heaven like I came from there. And no one had ever heard someone teach like that. 
People were saying, you know, God's kind of like this. And Jesus came along the scene and said, no, I know what God is like because I am God. And he spoke with so much authority. One time when Jesus was teaching, he was in a house. And the house got so full of people that as he's teaching, the roof starts caving in. Because people had climbed up onto the roof because they had a friend who was paralyzed and they wanted Jesus to, to heal him. And so the roof starts falling apart. Down comes this man on a mat who's been paralyzed. And Jesus, as, before, he, before he heals him, says, says this, that, that the Son of Man, I'm oh, sorry, back one, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus taught with authority, and then he said that he had authority to forgive sins. Now, how did Jesus have that kind of authority? You see, a sin is, a, a, is any time where we break God's command. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The thing that's coming to all of us for our sin is death. It's our wage. It's what we deserve. But Jesus said he had authority to forgive sins. How did he have that authority? He'd have to deal with death Somehow, because death is the punishment of sin. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 10, He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That when Jesus hung and died on the cross, it wasn't, He wasn't just some martyr who took things too far. It's not that things were spinning out of control. He was very much in control. He was using His authority to lay down His life to pay the penalty for sin, and then to take it up again so that he could do this, what it says in John 17. Father, glorify your Son, because you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so Jesus rose from the dead. He's not going to die again. He's got eternal life. And he has the authority to give eternal life to whoever believes in him. And maybe you're here today and you've been living under your own authority. And my question for you is, how's that working out? How is it working out with you being in charge? How is that working out with you calling the shots? That's never how you were designed to be made. You were designed to live under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus has made it possible. He has the authority to forgive your sin because he had the authority to die in your place and the authority to give you the gift of eternal life. And you can make that decision today by acknowledging his authority, by thanking him for dying on the cross for you and committing to following him as your Lord. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Then in verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here's the second question. Am I making disciples? Am I making disciples? Jesus said that he had all of the authority, and some of you are here today, I totally get that. And I made that decision to follow him and to come under his authority and to live under his authority. I made that decision years ago. Well, my follow-up question for you is, if you've made that decision, are you making disciples? Because Jesus told his disciples, as they're called in verse 16, he told his disciples that they needed to go and to make disciples. And he spoke that word with authority. And my question is, if Jesus has spoken authoritatively that all of us need to be engaged in making disciples of all nations, are we listening to him? And are we doing what he has called us to do? 
You see, Jesus doesn't just have authority over some Christians or one particular part of the world. Jesus has authority over all of it. The problem is, is many places around the world, even many places in this city, many people in this city, do not recognize that authority. And Jesus has told us to go and make disciples, to spread the word that he is in charge so that people would recognize his authority. The truth is that disciples make more disciples. That's what we're called to do. Notice how it's intentional. He says, go. It's intentional. It's not passive. It's proactive. Get out there, Jesus says. Don't just sit back and hope that it happens naturally. There's an intentionality that needs to be happening in discipleship and making disciples. Not only is it intentional, it's also international. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And what a, pri- what a bizarre privilege we have in the city of Brampton. You don't have to get on a plane to go to the nations. The nations have come to us. This is why Lindsay and I moved here six years ago, because we, we wanted to make disciples in a place where many nations are represented. I mean, you could get on a plane and fly to Sri Lanka, or you could just go down Main Street and go to Shopper's World. The nations are here, and we are supposed to go. And some of us, yeah, some of us are going to go and get on a plane, but some of us just need to go across the street and share who Jesus is and be involved in making disciples. Jesus chose to include us in God's masterful plan that he's been unfolding throughout all of history. Let me show you what I mean. In Genesis 12, at the very beginning of the Bible, God comes to Abraham. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had no children. And God made an incredible promise to Abraham. He said, you are going to have a child. He said, that child is going to have a child grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-great-great-great-grandkids, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he said that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That nation ended up being Israel. It was all part of God's great plan. That's at the beginning. Now, at the end of the Bible, we have this picture in Revelation 7. It says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So, at the beginning of the Bible, you have this promise All the nations are going to be blessed. At the end of the Bible, you see it happening. But how's it going to happen? That's why Matthew 28 is so important. Jesus stood with his 11 disciples in Matthew 28, telling them to make disciples of all nations. We have all been invited, not just to be part of this end in Revelation 7 when we're all there, but to actually be a part of what God is doing in leading world history to that moment. It's an incredible privilege. And are we going? Are we involved? Are we actually involved in making disciples? It can happen on a, on a number of levels. It can happen in being involved here in our church. It can happen through our tithes and offerings. I was talking to some of our missionaries this, um, this month. And Peter King, who's our missionary, he's the chaplain at Pearson Airport. And he's always witnessing to people. And he got in this conversation with someone who was um, there at the airport flying out. And Peter ended up leading this guy to become a disciple. This person recognized their need for a savior. They confessed their sin. They committed to follow Jesus as Lord. They became a disciple right there in Pearson Airport. 
And we're the ones helping support Peter be there in order to share his faith. And then Peter said, okay, so where's your, where's your flight? And he said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm heading home to, to Montreal. Peter said, well, I got to find you a church. He said, well, I, I mean, I don't think there's any churches in, in my area. I'm from this place called the Plateau. And Peter says, yeah, I know a church there. And he's able to connect this person who just became a follower of Jesus Christ to Brad and Emily Morris who are faithfully serving God, planting a church right there in that guy's neighborhood. And he was at their church this past Sunday. And we're all a part of that. Our, our giving, our sacrificial offering to the Lord is all helping those things happen. And so some of us are going, some of us are going across the street, going around the world. Some of us are giving. We're all part of this beautiful plan that God is calling us to do in making disciples. That's why we're so excited about Harvest University that's coming up at the end of October. And Harvest University is a training conference. And the whole theme of the conference is Risen for the Nations. And the whole point, every single workshop, every single teaching session is all geared towards how can we as a church be better at making disciples because that's our mission. That's what we're called to do. And so I invite you to make that a priority this month. We're called to make disciples. That's our mission. And then Jesus unpacks a little bit. What does he mean when he says make disciples? What are we supposed to do with people? What do we need to tell them? What should we teach them? What should we do with them in order for them to move from not being a disciple to actually being a disciple? So Jesus outlines the process. He gives two participles. Two participles, two ing words to unpack what he means by making disciples. First off, at the end of verse 19, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He talks about baptism. He talks about baptism. Here's the third question I got to ask you Have I been baptized? Have I been baptized? Jesus said, in order to become a disciple, in order to make these people disciples, you need to baptize them. So disciples get baptized. Now, it might strike us as strange to think of all the things Jesus could have said, of all of the things he could have emphasized about what it means to be a Christian, it's very interesting that Jesus chose baptism. And the fact that that's surprising to us shows that we don't put the value and the emphasis on baptism that Jesus did. I mean, these are his last words. And here's why he chose baptism. Because in saying baptize them, he's not just saying put as many people underwater as you possibly can. Because baptism is a symbol. It's an outward symbol of an inward and invisible spiritual reality. And when someone gets baptized, they're, they're recognizing some things. And it all fits beautifully in this idea of what we're talking about with discipleship. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus says, in order to become a disciple, you've got to die. There needs to be a death. You need to die to self. You need to stop living under your authority and begin to live under his authority. That's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes death. You go underwater, you're not breathing under there. It's a symbol of burial. It's a symbol of death. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 says that 
It says that, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You get into the water. You get into the water as, your, as a picture of your old self. You go under the water to symbolize that that old self, that old source of authority is now dying and you come out of the water to show newness of life. Baptism is a symbol of burial, but we we don't shovel dirt on you and bury you in the ground. You see, it's a double metaphor. It also symbolizes cleansing from sin. It also symbolizes cleansing from sin. When the Apostle Paul was sharing his testimony in Acts 22, verse 16, Ananias, the guy who helped lead him to the Lord, Ananias said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sin. Now, sin is not, you don't don't get sin under your fingernails. It's not something that you need to exfoliate off your skin. But the water of baptism is a symbol of what's happening on the inside, the cleansing that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And lastly, baptism is a symbol of our unity with the church. Ephesians chapter 4 says there is one body, that one body, that, that means the church. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What that verse is saying is that all of us have to do this one thing. All of us believe in one Lord. All of us share one faith. All of us are part of one body, and we show that we're part of one body by all of us, all disciples, going under the water of baptism. You see, so when Jesus says, go baptize them, he knows that in saying those few words, that simple instruction, he's saying that in simply saying baptism, he's he's making sure that the people who are disciples know that they need to die to themselves and start to live for God, know that they need to be cleansed from their sin, and know that they are joining a new family. And Jesus made all of that clear in the simple command, here's how to get started as a disciple. Now, some people would be here today and they would say, well, you know, baptism, it's all great and it's optional. You know, baptism doesn't save you. That's absolutely right. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith. Baptism technically is a work and you're not saved by going under water. I'll concede that. Listen, no one's trying to say here that baptism produces salvation, but baptism portrays salvation. It's a picture of what's taking place. And listen, if you, if you think it's optional, that's fine. Listen, Jesus' last words, make sure my disciples get baptized. Are you living under His authority? Because if you are, then you need to obey what He's saying, which is to get baptized. Other people would say, well, it, 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 it's not optional, it's just it's for infants. I was baptized when I was a child, and I, I would say to that, so was I. And I, I, was, I was baptized when I was an infant, but at that point, I wasn't a disciple. I was not a follower. No one had, I wasn't made into a disciple by another disciple, which is, which is the progress, the, 
the chronology that Jesus is laying out here, a disciple makes a new disciple and then baptizes that person. That hadn't happened. I hadn't placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I wasn't able to comprehend in my six-month-old brain the idea of dying to myself. I wasn't able to comprehend cleansing for my sin or unity in the church. A baptism is not for infants, it's for believers. And you can search the pages of the New Testament, there is no instance of an infant being baptized anywhere. Now, Occam's razor is not always right. That, that can't be the authority that the simplest, more straightforward answer is always the right one. But in this particular case, I mean, I, I have good friends who believe baptism is for infants. I have mentors who have had huge influence on my life who believe baptism is for infants. And any time that I engage in a discussion with them, here's one thing I've noticed. In order for them to explain to me why baptism is for infants, they need a whiteboard, 45 minutes, and a copy of the Institutes of Christian Religion. And any time they try to write it down, it takes like 75 pages. And you've got covenant and circumcision and John Calvin and all of this, and, and it's this convoluted structure that if you follow it logically, I can see how someone can get there. But my trouble is I can just show you the New Testament and show you every time someone got baptized, it's because they were a believer. And it's just as simple as that. And listen, we need to love people who disagree with us and be patient with people who are trying to learn in this way. But the long and the short of it is that baptism is not for infants, it's for believers. So some people say it's optional, some people say it's for infants, other people say it's for later. It's for later. Some of us are just classic procrastinators. I'll get around to it at some time. Listen, it's happening November 8th. Let's get this done. But others of us, we're putting it off because we feel like we're not ready. There's some besetting sin. There's some sort of behavior that we keep, or addiction that we keep kind of going back to, and we think, once I get that dealt with, then I will get baptized. But listen, remember the symbolism. Symbolism is an acknowledgement that you need to die to yourself. It's an acknowledgement that you have been cleansed for your sins. You don't come into the tank pre-cleansed. If you get baptized because you think you're ready now to be baptized, chances are you're not ready because you're not clinging to the gospel of Jesus. You're clinging to your own sense of personal self-righteousness. You'll never feel ready. Another reason why we say it's for later is we, we, we're sort of… We, we, Think about our baptism like event planners, and we want to be at the right time and the right place. I want to get baptized in the Jordan River by John Piper, and Billy Graham's going to be there. I'm going to fly into my parents, and it's all it's going to be so. When the Ethiopian guy in the chariot got led to the Lord, was it, oh, you know what, we better let your family know and make this all some sort of big, I'm not, I'm not saying don't celebrate it or 
But did he say, you better go back to Ethiopia and let people know and let's arrange for this big sort of event? No. He said, here's some water. What prevents you from being baptized? Let's get it done. And so don't, don't let any of those things delay. Is, are you living under Jesus' authority? And next week, we're starting that course, Baptism 101. Highly encourage anyone who hasn't been baptized. Listen, if you sign up for this course, that doesn't mean that you're going to go underwater on November 8th. But maybe that's the first step that you need to take in responding to Jesus' authority is to learn more about what baptism is. Jesus talks about baptism, which is sort of the rite of passage. It's how your relationship with God begins, recognizing you need to die to yourself and that you need to be cleansed from your sin and you're part of this new family. But then Jesus says, and then I want you to do something ongoing. He says, after baptizing, look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and parts of Acts all tell us what Jesus' teaching was. It's an overwhelming amount of content. And some of us can think of, man, if I'm going to obey or observe everything that Jesus said, I mean, I, I can't do that, and, and it's too hard, and, and I just, I, I just want to live a life of freedom. Well, remember what Jesus said in John eight thirty two. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The invitation to follow Jesus' command is not an invitation to take on a burden. It's an invitation to have a burden lifted. It's an invitation to freedom when you follow his commands and follow his word. But some of us, again, when we pay attention to what Jesus said about marriage and divorce, about worry, about anger, about lust, about fear of man, about greed, about integrity, about forgiveness, about honesty, about loving your enemies, just to name a few, it's, it's, I can't do that. How could I possibly fulfill everything that Jesus has said? But remember, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you're going to observe everything that Jesus commands, you are going to have to observe the fact and obey the fact that you can't do anything on your own. And following him literally is following him. You are going with him and he is going to help you to learn and to follow all that he has taught. And so we are a church that is committed to making disciples of people who don't know Jesus. And we're also committed to teaching the disciples who already do. And if you look through church history, and if you look through the New Testament, you will see that the best way to reach people outside the church is to teach people inside the church. So many churches can just be focused on teaching, but then there's no vision, there's no teaching of Matthew 28 that we're supposed to go and make disciples. Other churches are so focused on going and make disciples that there's no emphasis on teaching the disciples so that as they're going, they have nothing to say and nothing to teach. And so we are committed to teaching the people in the church, and we believe that that is the best strategy missionally for reaching the people outside of our 
church. Anyone in advertising or marketing will tell you that the best advertisement is a satisfied customer. It's someone who loves the product or loves the restaurant. They're telling everyone. And so what we are trying to do is tell people and show people and proclaim how great Jesus is and teach them so that those people go out into their families, into their workplaces, into their neighborhoods, fired up about who Jesus is. And when uh, people around them see someone who's not living a life that's filled with burdens, but actually being set free, they notice something that's different, like a city that's on a hill, like a light that can't be hidden. And that's such a powerful way to reach people who don't know about Jesus. So am I learning to obey all of Jesus' commands. And then at the end of verse 20, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's the last question. Do I believe he is with me? Do I believe he is with me? Now, don't get thrown by the word behold, okay? Behold is so King James, Behold is so Christmas pageant. And behold, an angel. It's, it's just like when Jesus is saying behold, we don't say behold too much in every day. When Jesus is saying behold, he's saying look. He's saying, he's saying look at me right now. If, you, if you've missed everything that I've said so far, disciples, I want you to get this. Look at me. Pay attention to the expression on my face, the intensity in my words right now, because what I'm about to say to you is absolutely crucial. And as Jesus focuses their attention, and Lord willing, focuses our attention by saying, behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that command or that instruction, that promise that he will be with us always, that only applies to disciples. And if you're here today and Jesus is just part, part over here that he doesn't have authority over all things, then that promise is not for you. He will not be with you always and he will not be with you at the end of the age. This world is coming to an end and things may be working out okay for you now, if you're living under your authority or the authority of popular opinion or of science or whatever. But there will be a time where your life will end. There will be a time when this world will end and all that will matter is are you, are you living under Jesus' authority? And if you aren't, then he won't be there for you. If you haven't trusted in him for the, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, dying on the cross for you, then you will have to pay the penalty for your own sin. That promise, I will be with you always, only applies to disciples. And so don't wait any longer. Jesus said, I'll be with you until the end. We don't know when the end is going to be. Make today the day where you submit to Jesus' authority. But I love how Jesus says this, I will be with you always. If you're thinking about following my commands and you're overwhelmed by how sinful you are and how given over you are to destructive habits and patterns of thinking, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will help you get through that. 
If you're thinking about what it actually means for you to be, a, to be a disciple maker in your home or in your work and you've been hiding your faith a little bit from other people and you know now that you need to be bold and follow what Jesus said and you're afraid, Jesus says, I will be with you. If you're considering going to the mission field and risking your life or uprooting all of your roots here, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be with you, he says. The strength that comes from knowing that Jesus is with you. The contentment that comes from knowing that Jesus is with you. The courage that comes from knowing that Jesus is with you. I remember when I was a little boy, not much older than my oldest son, Ezra. And I remember that I was just kind of coming to that age where things were really beginning to make sense about life and about God. And I remember that there would be times where these sort of waves of terror would, would sort of would come over me. These, these fears about, about the future or about my life or about getting things wrong. And I remember coming across this verse, Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And I remember, this was one of the first times that I remember in my life where God's word really spoke to me, like he was talking to me. And I did something that I saw my parents do. They would sometimes write verses on a little piece of cardstock and post it in somewhere they would remember. I remember writing out that verse in my crummy eight-year-old handwriting and putting it uh, right, on the, right on my bedpost, right beside my bed. As a reminder, listen, I may not always feel like God is with me, but the, the thing is, do I believe that He is? I also love this verse, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. With you. Isaiah 41.10, with you, Deuteronomy 31.8, with you, Matthew 28.20. Do you believe that he is with you? Because that makes all of the difference. You can go into any situation knowing that Jesus has ultimate authority. You can have any kind of a conversation. You can go through any kind of difficulty knowing that the one who has the authority over all heaven and earth has promised to be with you. To be a disciple is to believe that following him is not just a metaphor, that he's actually with you every moment of every day. Let's pray together. Now, some of you might be here today and you've never, you've never prayed before. And you're thinking that all of this is making sense. You understand that you've been living under your own authority and rejected Jesus' authority and you want to make things right. You want to become a disciple today. And praying is simply just talking to God. And... We bow our heads, we close our eyes just to focus our attention on Him when we're talking to Him. And if you want to become a disciple today, you can pray something like I'm about to pray in your own words and at your own time, or you can just quietly speak along with me, but just to acknowledge Jesus' authority and acknowledge that He died for you to pay the penalty you deserved and to commit to follow Him. So just pray in this way. 
Jesus, I believe that you are God. And Jesus, I believe that you have authority on heaven and on earth. And I confess that I have rejected your authority and that I've sinned against you. That I've lived according to my own authority and I want to change that. Thank you for dying on the cross for me to pay the penalty that I deserve for my sin. Thank you that you have authority to give eternal life. I commit to following you. I want to be with you. I want to know that you are with me always and at the end of the age. And God, right now, I pray for anyone who's prayed that prayer. I pray for anyone who wants to begin that relationship with you, God. I pray that they would have an overwhelming sense of your presence. God, I pray that they would follow through on being baptized, on learning everything that you've commanded, on, on living their life not under their own authority, but under your authority. And God, I pray that you would powerfully work in their lives, God. And Father, I pray for those of us who have made that decision years ago. God, I pray that we'd be refocused and refreshed on what it means to follow you and that we would be actively engaged in making disciples. And so God, we want to give our whole lives to you. You are the one who is in authority. And so we surrender everything that we have to you, all for your glory, all for our good, because we know that you love us and you've promised to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.